You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Well, one of the things that Keiko said, I want to repeat, and that is, I hope I'm not going too long. But if I am, then keep it to yourself, don't tell me. Because you'll probably spoil my composure and make me go longer. So, thank you for giving me the privilege and the honor of sharing the scriptures with you again this morning. And and I will probably go into the afternoon. (laughs) Maybe not. Well, yeah, I will. But um, I have my Bible open now, and this may not surprise you, to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. And if you have a Bible with you, I would be delighted. I would be tickled pink if you would open up with me to Ezra chapter 1, the first chapter of the book of Ezra we're going to read there in a couple of minutes. The first time I ever heard that expression about being tickled pink was in fifth grade, and I had a kind of uh, eccentric Uh, fifth grade teacher and she said something about being tickled pink and I thought what in the world is she talking about being tickled pink but I found out later uh, through trial and error but um, I I just wanted to say again and and I, I I think I say this a lot but it's always true how faithful the Lord is to speak his word to us in the early part of the service I just really cherish that probably in a way my favorite part of the service and and a prayer that my brother Elliot prayed and the introduction that our brother Dave gave and and the scripture that we heard and the prophetic word that we heard from Micah chapter 7 really uh, helped dovetail with, uh, I think, the word the Lord laid on my heart for us today. And uh, I just want to thank the Lord for that and and for for the brethren for being willing to share as the Holy Spirit leads. And even the the, the anointing that is always on Carl and the selection of the songs a lot of the same themes that we're going to be looking at in Ezra today. Um, And especially I wanted to acknowledge the powerful word that the Lord spoke to us last week through our brother Carl when he was up here right in this uh, slot. And if you were here, you know that he spoke to us uh, in an anointed way, in a convicting way, out of uh, the the Gospel of of Mark, chapter 14. Uh, We finished our study of Mark before we moved into Ezra. And um, he was talking to us about the Apostle Peter and about the danger of distancing ourselves from the Lord. The extraordinary thing about Peter is he spent his whole life as a disciple as close as he could possibly be to Jesus. Once he leaped over the side of the boat to get to Jesus before the other guys, he was so eager to be with Jesus. But at one of the most critical periods in Jesus' life, the early part of his trial, Peter had distanced himself. He was following from afar. He was standing and warming himself uh, with the temple guards and, uh, and not w- close to Jesus. He had distanced himself. He had, he had succumbed to the temptation of being close to the world instead of being close to Jesus. Made the wrong choice. Scripture says bad company corrupts good morals. We're going to be reading about a lot of people today we, have, we will be as we study the book of, book of Ezra and Nehemiah, who may similarly made the wrong choice by marrying foreign wives and intermingling with the people of the nations that the Lord had specifically forbade them to intermingle with. 
The way back for Peter was repentance. Jesus said to him, once you've turned, strengthen your brothers. The way back for uh, the children of Israel um, in, in captivity in, in Babylon and in Persia was to repent and to return to the Lord. And that's what uh, the book of Ezra is all about in the book of Nehemiah that we're going to be studying t- today. It says after Peter um, recognized what he'd done in the cock had crowed, he, he wept bitterly. Very same language used for the people who repented of their sins, and we're going to be reading that shortly. Weeping bitterly over sin, that which distances us, that which separates us from the Lord. So it's a privilege to build on the foundation that that, uh, Carl uh, laid for us last week, and um, also some of the same themes in the the word from Micah chapter 7 that Alex shared. And so thanks for laying the groundwork for me, Lord. Before we start reading in Ezra, I just want to confess something to you uh, personally, that sometimes as an individual, I get really discouraged, even to the point of, of depression and despair sometimes. When I look at the situation of things around me in the world, it's easy for me to get downcast. Um, when I look at our society, which right now is possibly more Uh, polarized and divided than it has been at any any time since the Civil War in American culture. And uh, people are mistrustful of each other and and hateful and openly spiteful toward people uh, from from other persuasions, uh, other races, other backgrounds sometimes. And um, uh, some people say we may have another Civil War. And and, uh, this is a time that Christians ought to be uniting and rising up and being strong in unity. And we haven't completely and effectively done that yet. Our streets of our major cities in this, in this country are filled with gun violence, appalling levels, homicide rates, angry, mainly young men, armed with uh, weapons that they shouldn't have, um, killing each other, and innocent people being caught in the crossfire. And, you know, the people keep trying to make laws and pass resolutions to stop it, and it seems like it's getting worse. And if you look beyond the boundaries of the United States of America, around the world, it may be even worse than it it is here. This is a time when totalitarianism is on the rise, dictatorships are increasing, the power, military and economic power of of nations that are ruled by dictators is is growing uh, seemingly daily. And uh, people are, they say that that probably less than 30% Less than three in seven of the people on the face of the earth live in a country where there's religious freedom, where there's, uh, where there's civil liberties, where civil rights are honored and respected. Probably uh, very few, uh, probably only three out of ten of our, of our brothers and sisters around the world live in a place where you can openly say, Jesus is Lord and I am his follower without fearing being punished for it. And uh, I think these are dark times. And on top of it all, our world is burning up. We're in the midst of a, of a global crime, climate crisis, and uh, sometimes we kind of push it to the edge of our, of our awareness. But things are getting hotter and hotter. Some countries have, have already disappeared and are on the verge of disappearing, and they say that in the next uh, five to 10 years, uh, possibly hundreds of millions of people who live in large cities along the coasts, uh, their cities are gonna be gone. Their homes are gonna be underwater. And uh, it's, so it's, it's a discouraging time to live in, I think. 
And yet, sometimes we're tempted to say it's never been this bad before. This is probably the worst time in human history. I think through the long lens of human history, we would say that's really not true. There have been awful times all throughout human history. And one of them was the time of the period of the captivity, particularly for the children of Israel uh, who, were, who were suffering first under Babylonian captivity, then under Persian. And as you know, this was not the first captivity that God's people had been through. And uh, so that's why reading the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, starting actually in, in Second Chronicles, there's a continuum that goes through Ezra and Nehemiah. We're gonna be studying these books and reading. We've, you've already begun to read them together. That's why it's so critical and so relevant because there's been, there, the, the, the people of God during this period were completely devastated. Their homeland had been, had been captured, had been destroyed, had been conquered. The temple was destroyed. The gates of Jerusalem were broken down. Most of them had either been killed or carried off into captivity and were living miserable lives in Babylon and, and then in Persia. And uh, it was a terrible, terrible situation. And in fact, they probably had about the same amount of hope that things were going to get better as we do in 21st century civilization that things are going to get better, which is really no hope except for one. There is one source of hope, and that is in the Lord our God. He was their hope. He is our hope. And he is not only the best hope, but he's the only hope. And that's a good place to be. Our hope is in God that he would move by his spirit, that he would stir people's lives, that he would remember his remnant, that he would uh, rebuild the, the, the ancient city and the walls of Jerusalem and the temple, that, that God, in short, would bring revival. And that's what these books are about. The underlying theme of, the, of these books is, is one of revival. And we're going to look at some of, the, some of the highlights of revival today. Do you pray for revival? Do you? You should be. We should be praying every day that God would send his Holy Spirit and revive us, revive us individually. I see in my own life many times a lot of lukewarmness and I need to be revived. And I see, especially in the, in Western, in the Western world, the church needs to be revived. It's doing a lot better under persecution spiritually in places like North Korea and China, which my brother Elliot prayed for earlier. And, uh, but even though they're in captivity, the Lord is reviving by his Holy Spirit, but uh, we need to pray for revival for, for, for them and for us. And, and that's the incredible joy of the reading of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, is that there's hope because God stirs up his people and he moves by his spirit, amen? Our hope, their hope. But how does revival work? What does it look like? What are the signs that revival is coming? What are the things that are delaying revival? What are the obstacles? To revival. When revival comes, will we be ready? And I mean you and me. Will we be agents of revival? What role will we have to play? I think the answers to all of these questions are found right here in the books that we're reading now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is really what we have before us is a handbook of revival, and it's a privilege to be able to look here and see how it's going to work and what God is going to do.
God has not forgotten his people in the darkest of times. That's the hope that emerges. There's a place in, in Isaiah chapter 49. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. It's, it's Isaiah chapter 49 around verse 15, where Zion is, is feeling very desolate and discouraged. And she says, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. Our God, my God has forgotten me. And the Lord replies with a powerful, poignant, rhetorical question. This is Isaiah 49, 15. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child or fail to have compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but Israel, I will not forget you. The Lord goes on and he says, behold, I have inscribed my people on the palms of my hands. Your walls are always before me. That is our hope. That is the promise by which we live. Now, the way the book of Ezra starts off is the Lord bringing, beginning revival and bringing hope for deliverance and for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem from the most unlikely of sources. It was referred to early at the very beginning of this service. Has that ever happened to you? Has there ever been a time in your life when things have been really bad and beyond your control and you're unable to fix it and the Lord has to send somebody or something into your life to deliver you? And the person that comes to save you and your, 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 to deliver you is the last person you ever would have expected? Who would have thunk it? Cyrus, a pagan emperor, not a, a part of God's people. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. This is, the, this is the tool, the instrument that God used. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all of the kingdoms, all of his kingdoms, and he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, hope you're with me in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has, he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in, Ju in Judah. Whoever there is among, among you of, of his people, may the God be, be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, um, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. I love the way Cyrus identifies God. He says, he's the God who's in Jerusalem. He may not have known he was not, he was not only the God in Jerusalem, but in the whole earth, but Cyrus called him the God who is in Jerusalem. And the Lord used, the, used this proclamation to stir up God's people. And he, and, and he says at the beginning of Ezra that this was done to, to fulfill the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. What was the word that Jeremiah spoke? This is in Jeremiah chapter 29. If you're able or, or, or willing or interested in turning, this is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is the word that's being fulfilled at Cyrus is identifying here in the beginning of Ezra. It's in Jeremiah 29. 
For thus says the Lord, this is Jeremiah 29:10. when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my word, my good word to you, and I will bring you back to this place. Uh, that, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, possibly the most often quoted verses, verse from the book of, of Jeremiah, at least in, in common times, in recent times among believers that I listen to, is a beautiful verse of God's promise not to forget his people and to, that he has a future and a hope for us. And we usually take this verse out of context and apply it to a variety of situations in our lives and those we're praying for to, get to, to, to give people hope and courage. It's probably, it may be okay to take verses from the scriptures out of context and not consider the context, but how much richer and how much better it is to look at the, at the promises of God in the context in which they were given. And in this case, it was, had to do with the, the word of Jeremiah being fulfilled and the Lord bringing back his people uh, to, to Jerusalem uh, through, through the proclamation of Cyrus. Now Jeremiah the prophet doesn't in his book mention Cyrus by name but Isaiah does and uh, another passage a place where he does that is Isaiah chapter 44. So if you are turning with me um, Isaiah chapter 44 uh, is, is one of the places in the scriptures where Cyrus is specifically mentioned by the Lord. This is the, the last verse of Isaiah 44. This is the Lord speaking. He says, it is I who say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. This is Cyrus, the Lord's anointed from Jeremiah and from Isaiah. And this, so this book of Ezra uh, is that we're reading and into, into Nehemiah is really a fulfillment of the word that's, words, the promises that God made long ago. The call is to, to, that Cyrus issues is to all those whom God, will, who, who, whom, who God is stirring up, those who will go forth. The seed of revival is in the response of the people to Cyrus's declaration, and we see that in verse five. This is back in Ezra. Hope you don't mind flipping a little bit back and forth with me, but Ezra chapter one, verse five. How do God's people respond to Cyrus's proclamation? It says that the heads of the father's households of Judah and of Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, they arose and everyone whose spirit the God had stirred uh, to go up and to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. This is the response of God's people as he moves by his spirit. Those whose spirit God has stirred, they get up and they go to rebuild God's house, to rebuild the place where he is worshiped. And it's a powerful response. And this is the seed of revival in these books. Verse, four, verse five of chapter one, they arise, they go forth. They're ready to commit their lives and their fortunes to rebuilding God's house. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life 
when the Lord has called you to rebuild something that had been broken down? Has the Lord ever made you an agent of rebuilding and of revival? There have been a couple of times during the time that I've been part of this congregation when, when uh, our existence as a, as a church was severely threatened and almost came to an end. Uh, both of the times, there may have been others that I'm not aware of, but both of the times I'm thinking of had to do with failed ministries. They were people that God had raised up and had ministered the word who experienced moral failure in their lives and their ministries were effectively ended and they had difficulty repenting of the sin that they had fallen into. And both times could have been the end of living word. But God raised up faithful people who were ready and willing to rebuild. The first failure, uh, God raised up a man by the name of John Hone, whom some of you know, a tremendous blessing. And there were others with him. And they came and they said, we're going to rebuild. We're going to rebuild the house of God, even though it's been devastated, and even though the walls have been broken down by this moral failure. The second time, that similar kind of thing happened. Um, and again, the Lord raised up faithful people uh, to rebuild. And one of the leaders of that group was a guy by the name of Buck Sharp. And it was an honor uh, to, uh, to see uh, and to witness how, how um, he, he rolled up his sleeves to rebuild the walls that had been, broken, had been broken down. Faithful people responding to God's word. The book of Ezra really contains two separate revivals. They're kind of like two waves of revival, two, two waves of returning exiles who came back to rebuild uh, the temple in Jerusalem. The first, and and it, it, it divides up in terms of uh, chapters uh, into verses, into chapters 1 through 6, and then chapters 7 through 10. Sometimes there are waves of revival. Sometimes it's not just all one fell swoop, but revival comes and begins, then there are pauses and hesitations, delays, uh, sometimes as a result of sin, and then revival resumes. And uh, one of the things that John Hone used to say is it's difficult sometimes for the church to know how to live when we're between waves of revival. But um, the first wave of revival is, is, is led by a man named Zerubbabel, and we see him in chapter 2. So if you're with me in Ezra chapter 2, um, Let's see, I guess Zerubbabel is first mentioned in verse 2. It says, there came, he, there came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, uh, Nehemiah, Beriah, and several other people. And then there's a long listing of the people that came with Zerubbabel. Uh, some are builders, some are leaders, some are priests and Levites. And so Zerubbabel was, was the person who responded first and who came uh, out of captivity, returned to Jerusalem, to begin to rebuild the foundation of the temple. He was in the first wave. He, and, and, there's, and, and the listing of the names in chapter 2 is really significant. Sometimes when we read a lot of names in a list in the Bible, we tend to skip over them. Most of them we don't recognize sometimes. But these people's names are here for a particular reason, and that is that God is honoring them and recording them as being people who are willing to be agents of revival. You can get your name in the scriptures, too, if you're willing to, to rise up and to rebuild and to be, to be an agent of revival. And these people were honored for it. And the work under Zerubbabel uh, continues through chapter 6. Um, and uh, tremendous uh, 
struggle and, and trials and difficulties that they went through, but continued and persisted at it. And then in chapter seven, the Lord raises up a, another anointed leader uh, to, to, to lead in the second wave of revival. What was his name, the name of the second one? Does anybody know? Okay, at least one person in the congregation knows it was Ezra. Uh, uh, he doesn't actually appear, make an appearance in his book until chapter seven. And uh, so he, he was the leader of the second wave of revival. See, the history of Israel, the history of the church, God's people generally, is one of captivity. It's a one of a lot of suffering, um, a lot of, uh, often as the result of their own sin, of our own sin, a lot of difficult times, a lot of trials and tribulations that need to be endured. The history of Israel and the church, more than being a history of, of, of a series of captivities and struggles, is a history of God's love, God's faithfulness to his people, God's presence with them in the midst of captivity, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of need and of want, in the midst of persecution. Right now, today, as we're sitting here comfortably and are going home to warm places with nice meals and nice lunches, most of us, um, there are tens and possibly even um, hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters who are not free, who are in captivity, some of them under atheistic rule uh, in places like North Korea and China as, and, and other countries as, as have been mentioned, some of them under the tyranny of false religions, thinking of places like uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, many places of course across Northern Africa where our brothers and sisters today are in captivity. They're in bondage today, just as the children of Israel were in bondage during this time. And there's a long litany of people who have, of tyrants and dictators who have delighted in persecuting God's people, Israel and the church throughout history. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, here in these books that we're studying, uh, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, um, at, the, at the time of Jesus's ministry, the Roman emperors, uh, culminating with one of the most wicked and evil not mentioned in scripture, a man by the name of Diocletian. And, and down throughout history, God's people have suffered and have been under tyrants and have been persecuted for their, their loyalty to Jesus Christ and to God's call. And um, it continues on into the modern era. Adolf Hitler, persecuting God's people. Uh, even, even much more recently than that, um, Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping. These and many other names that could be mentioned will all be forgotten one day. All of the tyrants, all of the dictators, all of the persecutors, their names will be relegated to the dustbin of history. There is only one name that's above every name that will, that will triumph, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And those who will be victorious are those who are allied with him, with God's people, and also with the nation of Israel uh, before Jesus' incarnation. Those are the names 
they will be victorious, ultimately, God's people. And we know this not because we try to make ourselves feel good, but because we read the end of the book. We win, brothers and sisters. We win. Have you read that part? We win. Hallelujah. And we're not just building ourselves up and making ourselves feel good because in Revelation it says that finally the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and we will reign with him. Jerusalem being rebuilt, people returning here in Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, the return uh, continues in chapter 3. This is a long book, and we're not covering everything, but just to hit some of the highlights of revival. Um, Ezra chapter 3. I'm looking at verse 8. Ezra 3, 8. It says, In the second year of their coming uh, into to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, uh, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, and the son of Jehoadak, um, and the rest of, of their brothers, and he, and he talks about the priests, the Levites, and he goes through some of their duties uh, as the temple is being rebuilt, and a lot of it had to do with laying the foundation and praising God in the midst of it. This is the, the be beginning of the rebuilding and revival process. And it says in verse 11, let's see, that they, that they sang, this, these are the Levites and the worshipers and the people with them, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is, up, is upon Israel forever. And all of the people shouted with a great shout when they, when they praised uh, the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The foundation of worshiping God had been restored. And there was a loud shout of joy, for he is good, for his mercy is upon Israel forever. A time of rejoicing. And Jerusalem is a place of rejoicing, especially as, it's been as it is being restored then and now. This is true of the first Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, and also the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. That city uh, that the scriptures say was Abraham's dream, he said he was, he was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. And that's the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. There's a first Jerusalem and a second one. And um, the Lord talks about how he's going to create the new Jerusalem also, like the first, only greater, for rejoicing. And this uh, passage, the most powerful passage about this I know is Isaiah 65. I want to take, just take a quick look with you at the 65th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 65. For the Lord says he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Some of you know these verses. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad, the Lord is telling us to be glad, and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. This wonderful mutual rejoicing that we have in God's city, Jerusalem, we rejoice 
in it and in him, and he rejoices in us. That's what the Lord has called us to, and that's all foreshadowed uh, in Ezra. And um, it, the culmination of this is uh, envisioned by the Apostle John uh, toward the very end of the Bible. Um, this is uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 10. And, he, and, and John says, I was led by the Spirit to a, to a high mountain, and I saw the new Jerusalem, the city of God, descending out of heaven from God, adorned with many precious stones. And it also says she was adorned as a bride for her husband, the new Jerusalem. This is all foreshadowed, and this is here in Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is the culmination of it that John saw at the very end of our Bible. But I want to glance with you at a couple more of the highlights of revival and how it works here in Ezra. Uh, so um, another, another of the highlights uh, is in chapter 4. So back to Ezra, chapter 4, Ezra 4. One of the things that happens when the Lord rebuilds, when people's spirits are stirred to go up and to rebuild, and when revival comes and the winds of revival blow, one of the things that happens is the opposition of the enemy. Do you think the enemies are going to sit idly by while God's work is done and his people are restored and revival comes? Not hardly. Ezra 4. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of, of, of the exile were, were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and they make him this false uh, offer of assistance, but he sees through it and he knows that they are they're false, and they're not really interested in rebuilding. They're interested in the exact opposite, which is destroying uh, the work of God and the rebuilding. He sees right through it. And what they actually do, uh, two men in particular, whose names we'll come to in a minute, what they actually do is that they try to persuade the, the emperor, Artaxerxes, uh, to issue a decree to stop the building of the wall and the, and the temple, rebuilding of the temple. Um, so he does that. He listens to them. He follows their advice. He is persuaded by them. And uh, it says in verse uh, 8, Rebum, uh, the commander, and Shimshai, uh, the scribe, they, they wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes. And um, so then Artaxerxes responds to their request, and he, he makes his proclamation, and this occurs... Uh, to, to stop the building of the wall um, in verses, like, verse 21. Uh, they, they, so they tell him to issue a decree. Let me make sure I got the right passage. Um, so, okay, so verse, verse 23. It says... Um, then, as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read uh, before Rebun and Shimshai, the scribe and their colleagues, that they went in haste to Jerusalem and, and to the Jews, and they stopped them by force of arms. And the, so, the house of, so the work on the house of the Lord was ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. So the enemies obviously uh, interfering and preventing the, the going forth of the rebuilding of the house of the Lord. And if we are seeking real revival here and praying and asking God to bring us revival, 
there will be enemies who will try to oppose us. And we've, we've seen a little bit of that, and we may see more as we continue to pray and, uh, and ask the Lord to revive us. So how do God's people respond? Do they, do they quit? Do they say, okay, well, we tried. I guess it didn't really work, so let's just go back to captivity. Not hardly. They don't do that at all. The people, God's people respond in faith, and they rise up. And so in chapter 5, we see some part of the response. Um, and it has to do with, the, with prophets and leaders. It says in, in chapter 5, when the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, and they prophesied uh, to, to those who were in Judah and Jerusalem uh, in the name of the Lord and, uh, and of Israel. Uh, and then Zerubbabel, uh, the son of Shealtiel, uh, and Jeshua with him, the son of Jehoadak, they arose and they began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So the, so the response of God's people, both anointed prophets and leaders, is to rebuild and to not, and to not uh, cave in to the pressure of the enemy, but, but to, to rise up. And there's a, there's a special anointing here that has to do with prophetic ministry. Uh, you, you recognize the names of Haggai and Zechariah. We have their books of prophecy recorded for us uh, at the end of our Old Testament. But these are people that the Lord prophetically spoke to uh, to come and to support the leaders and to, and to and bring encouragement and support and faith. So the, so the prophets prophesy and see, the leaders act, and they rise up in response uh, to that word, and the Lord rewards their faith. And he does it, in this case, again, by touching a, another pagan emperor by the name of Darius. And Darius uh, in, intervenes also, and uh, in, verse, in chapter 6, it talks about Darius, who was the successor to Cyrus. It says, then Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the, in the archives uh, where the treasures were stored. And um, but he, what he decrees uh, is he reverses the previous uh, imperial decree. And uh, it says in verse 7 that the I, Darius, uh, gave, this, um, gave this work on the house of the Lord, uh, and to and the governor gave this work um, to the Jews and the elders of, of the Jews to rebuild the house of the Lord um, on this site. Moreover, I issued a decree concerning that what you are to do for those elders of Judah in the rebuilding of the house of the Lord, and that the full cost is to be paid uh, from, from, for this, to these people out of the royal treasury. So not only did Darius say, issue a decree that God's house would be rebuilt and that the work would be resumed, but that it would be paid for uh, out of the treasuries of Persia. So uh, the Lord worked powerfully in response to the faith of the prophets and Zerubbabel and those who were with him uh, to, to continue the rebuilding of the house. Another highlight of revival, uh, and this is in chapter 7, flipping ahead to chapter 7, is one that we've already mentioned and it's pretty clear throughout uh, the book of Hezra, and that is the, the raising up of anointed leaders. And, of course, this is where Ezra enters the book uh, in person in, to his own book, and um, he, he comes in, and it says that Ezra, 
the son of Sariah, he comes and he goes up also to Jerusalem. Ezra, obviously a key leader, an anointed person. It says in verse 6, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him um, all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. This is godly leadership, people who are skilled in the word of the Lord. Like Paul said to Timothy, be diligent to show yourself approved, a person, a, a workman who accurately handles the word of truth, who doesn't need to be ashamed. And Ezra was a man who was skilled in the word of the Lord, and just as important, the hand of his God was upon him. This is the secret of anointed leadership and of his effectiveness. Uh, it's really um, undermines the work of the enemy when, when God raises up leaders like this. And, and the real key, I think, to the success of Ezra in the work that God had called him to was his character, the kind of a man he was. And, and we see this in, ver- in verse 10, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And this is probably my favorite verse from the whole book of Ezra. And this is what it says. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He was bound and determined to to fulfill this threefold purpose that he had, to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. Not Not just to know it in an academic ivory tower kind of a way, but to do it, to live it, to practice it, to be a person of integrity. And not, and not just that, not just to, to, to benefit himself, but to then take the principles that he was, had studied and learned and, and taught and practiced, and, and, and practiced and to teach them to all of Israel. That was the anointing and the call. And, and this, I think, is the heart of true leadership. This is the kind of leader that you want to follow, someone who does these three things, who, who, te- who studies the law of the Lord and knows it, who practices it, doesn't just preach it, but practices it, and who teaches the, the statutes and ordinances to God's people. This is the secret of Ezra and the, as, a, as an instrument of revival. Another important key of revival is in the next chapter, and it's chapter 8, and I'm uh, looking at verse 21 of Ezra 8. Ezra 8, 21. He says, this is Ezra speaking, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, uh, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the safe journey. Have we, brothers and sisters, been to the river Ahava, a place of fasting, a place of humbling? This is a key element of revival and one that's often overlooked. Fasting, humility, humbling ourselves before the Lord. Do you like to fast? I don't. You know why I don't like to fast? I like to eat. And, uh, you know, I think the Lord sometimes challenges us and says, are you willing to give up something that you love and is dear to you and is natural to you in order for, to seek my purposes. And Ezra pro- proclaimed a fast 
at the river Ahava. I think if we really want revival and we really care about revival, we need to visit the river Ahava and we need to fast and we need to humble ourselves and pray. And we've just gotten into the humbling part. It gets even better as we keep going on in Ezra. And uh, what this humility leads to, this humbling, this fasting, this prayer, is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. And this is at the heart also of revival. Chapter 9. It says that when these things had been accomplished, the princes approached me. This is Ezra again speaking. The princes approached me saying this. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their, to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their, their daughters as wives for themselves and, their, and, and for their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the, of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the, the, hands of the rulers, the, pre, the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. The last word of that verse says it all, unfaithfulness. We know God's statutes and his ordinance. We know that he commanded us not to intermingle with the nations and to worship their gods and to take them as wives lest lest we be drawn away from the Lord. We know, and we did it anyway, and you know what? It was the the princes and the leaders who took the way, who who, who led in this. And this is a a grievous situation that's reported to Ezra here uh, in chapter 9. The identification of sin. This This is a vital to revival. It propels revival when sin is identified. The scripture says, um, he who covers his sin will not prosper. If I, if I hide iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. When sin is exposed, God can deal with it and revival can proceed. How does, how does Ezra take this news? Does he take it lightly? Verse three. When I heard about this, matter. I shook my head and I said, that's such a shame. Oh, well, I guess we should just move on. After all, it's all water, water under the dam by now, right? Not at all. He does not take the sin of his people lightly. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my, and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard, and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the, of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Are we appalled at sin? Or do we say, ah, oh, you know, what's the big deal? Other people have done worse things, you know. That's fitting into the world. That's like Carl exhorted us against distancing ourselves from the Lord and, and finding comfort and friendship. Uh, in, the th- in the world and warming ourselves by the fire with the guards. How easy it is to lightly skip over our sins and, and say, well, that's too bad, but we'll just move on. 
Ezra doesn't do that at all. And what follows here, Ezra chapter 9, verse 3, and on through this chapter, is one of the most powerful and poignant prayers anywhere in the scriptures. It's a prayer of complete humiliation, complete humbling, identifying himself with the sins of the people, saying, God, we don't deserve your mercy. We deserve punishment for what we've done. It's taking it absolutely seriously. Let's just pick it up again in verse 8. This is in the middle of Ezra's prayer. It's a little too long to read the whole thing. But Ezra prays in in, uh, chapter 9, verse 8. And he says, But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave, uh, uh, to, to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in the holy place. That's what this whole thing, this rebuilding of the temple, is just a peg that God had given them in the holy place. That our God may enlighten our eyes. Revival is God enlightening our eyes. And to grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves. In our, and in our, but in our bondage, God has not forgotten us. Remember the promise in Isaiah when they said, the Lord has forsaken me. He has forgotten about us. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Israel, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God has not forgotten us. But he is, back to verse 9, but he has extended loving kindness to us uh, in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore the ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. A wall. God said, your walls are always before me. God has given us a wall. He's given us a peg in the promised land because of his goodness, his mercy, his forgiveness. What an amazing prayer. And this, the powerful prayer of Ezra and the others who were with him trembling at God's word had a powerful result. And the result was nothing less than corporate repentance. Verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Ezra 10, 1. It says, while Ezra was praying uh, and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the, house, be, before the house of God, a very large assembly, men and women and children, gathered to him from Israel, and, for, and, and the people wept bitterly. They didn't just say, ah, oh, what a shame. Tsk, tsk, let's move on. Just like Peter After the cock crowed, he wept bitterly because he realized how serious his sin was and and how much he needed repentance. And God's people here weep bitterly over their sin. And it's these tears that water the seeds of revival. Do we care enough about our sins? Do we take them seriously? Do we weep bitterly over them? Corporate repentance. Then in verse 2, The Lord had been working through uh, Ezra. The Lord raises up another man. Ezra 10.2, Shechaniah. Not quite as well known as Ezra. But Shechaniah was the son of Jehiel, uh, one of the sons of Elam. And he said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the lands. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Shechaniah says, we have hope. In Ezra's prayer of repentance, there is hope. 
in spite of our sin, there is hope in Israel. And the Lord will raise us up if we make ourselves available to him to be Shechaniahs, to be people who say, you know, God, as bad as it looks, in the church, the lukewarm church, you know, the sinful world, a, a violent culture, um, a world where it seems to be getting on fire, as bad as it looks, there is hope because our God has not forgotten us. He has given us a peg. Uh, he has allowed a fa- the, ten- the foundation of his temple to be rebuilt. And then, and, and then so the covenant, there was the ultimate result of this kind of repentance for them and for us is a renewal of the covenant. And we see this in verse 3, chapter 10, verse 3. So now let us make a covenant. This is still Shechaniah talking, the man of hope. He says, so now let us make a covenant with our God to put away the wives and their children according to the counsel of the word of the Lord, um, of my Lord. He's talking about Ezra, the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandments of our God and let it, let, and let it be done according to the law. I love what Shechaniah says about trembling at the commandments of our God. Do we do that? Do we read about God's righteous statutes and ordinances and expectations of us and, and tremble? The Lord is looking for people who do, who are willing to put away the foreign gods, kick them out, or the foreign wives, kick them out, get rid of them. Tremble at the word. It says in Isaiah 66, it talks, there's a number of places in the scriptures about trembling, but one of them is Isaiah 66, and the Lord says this, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. So then, continuing on in verse 4, Shechaniah says to, to, to uh, Ezra, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. You're the chief leader, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. God's people uniting behind anointed leadership in solidarity, promoting courageous action. Be courageous, act. Don't just sit around. God's about to do something. Do we want revival, brothers and sisters? Do we really care about it? Do we really pray about it? What should we be doing today to prepare for revival? Is there some humbling, some fasting, some trip to the river Ahava, some confessing of sin, some identifying with the sin of others, some humbling and and fasting before the Lord, and and some um, reminders of the promises of God, the hope that we have in him and in his word. He who said he inscribed us on the palm of his hands, he who gave us incredible promises in his word, and he who brings revival. But but how will revival come, and, and what will our role be in it? Here's the handbook right here. Father, I want to thank you so much for um, your goodness and faithfulness to us, especially the way you speak your word to us so clearly. I thank you so much for the word that you spoke to us last week um, through our brother Carl about Peter 
in Mark chapter 14 and the danger of distancing ourselves from you. The danger of marrying foreign wives and intermingling uh, with the people around us who don't love you and don't know you and being cozy and friendly and warming ourselves by their fire, Lord. And we should be standing at your side, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the warnings, but thank you especially for your grace and your promises to us. Lord, thank you for speaking to us so powerfully earlier today through um, the book of, of through Micah chapter 7 about how we are to lean into you. Lord, about how you, even in spite of our sin, you are with us and you will work powerfully in our lives and bring us into your purposes. Lord Jesus, we want to present ourselves to you. We ask you to send revival. Lord, we pray that the foundation of your house would be rebuilt and the walls would be restored. And Lord, use us. Make us the agents of revival, Father. In Jesus' name.